Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science Shambles podcast. Producer Trent here with a couple of announcements. Our event on International Women's Day, March 8th at Manchester University with Helen Chersky, Susie Gage, Sheena Cruikshank and Ginny Smith has very few tickets left now. It's a free event, so make sure you register and get your tickets now. There is only a handful left Go to the events pages at cosmicshambles.com to find out about that. And we've also got two events coming up at King's Place on March 20 and April 3rd. Universe of Music with Professor Chris Lintott and Steve Pretty of the Hackney Colliery Band. Uh, That is a fun new live show working out where the crossover between music and and astrophysics and astronomy is. Tickets for that are only £10.50. Again, events page on Cosmic Shambles. You'll find out about that. And you can support everything we do here at the Cosmic Shambles Network by either pledging as little as a dollar a month on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. That's the Patreon for the overall Cosmic Shambles Network Or you can check out and get something from our new online shop at cosmicshambles.com slash shop. And this episode of Science Shambles, we have to make a small apology off the top. The sound quality isn't studio quality as you would normally expect from Science Shambles. When Robin sat down with Paul Davies, uh, it was in a large echoey room with uh, one of the microphones not working as well as it should have. So it's all perfectly fine and clear. It's just uh, it's just not in our usual studio. So keep that in mind while you're listening to it, which you can do right now. So I start off by... Well, actually, the first thing I, I, I want to... Before we get into the actual book, which is... Uh, You've written so many books tackling ideas about the nature of the universe and its contents, and yet this is probably the longest period where you haven't written a book. You know, t- yes, t- ten years. Correct. What what was the, what's the 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 reason that you, that you came back with this book? It's a very simple reason why it's been ten years. I got dragged into cancer research, uh, something totally unexpected. I had a phone call from the deputy director of the U.S. National Cancer Institute saying. Uh, you don't know me, but I'm deputy director here, and uh, we're basically stuck in cancer research. Can physicists help? And I said, I don't know anything about cancer. And she said, well, that's fine. It doesn't matter. Uh, and that thus began an extraordinary episode in my life when I was asked to run quite a major cancer research program, and I think made a, a contribution to the field, which I uh, continue to uh, to be involved in. And so that sort of took me out of the loop for quite some period of time. Uh, But it was very definitely a perturbation on my career, and I always wanted to get back to tackle this problem of life's origin and its nature, which I've been thinking about for decades. And how much did this this work in cancer research affect you actually write this book? Because you do talk later on in the book about this, you know, nanomedicine, and the possibilities of, rather than destroying cells, rewiring cells. So in cancerous cells, being able to actually change the information within them. I mean, mean, did that have an effect? Did that draw you in as well? Well, it did, to a certain extent, that's right. Because uh, when I became involved in cancer research, I approached it very much as a physicist who works on 
fundamental in questions, uh, would, which is to say, what is cancer? Why does it exist? What is its place in the great story of life? In other words, I was interested in cancer as a biological phenomenon and not just as an annoying thing we want to get rid of. Uh, and so thinking about it in those fundamental terms led me very much to uh, to contemplate the nature of life and cancer is an alternative way of doing eukaryotic life, thinking of it in these informational terms. And these days, because the whole of cancer research is in thrall of sequencing, it's all about genome sequencing and uh, gene expression data and so on, it's all driven by bioinformatics. That the information is very much at the forefront, but it's treated as you know, a commodity that you uh, inspect uh, for ideas, not as a physical variable. Whereas I, the way I have come to think of information is as a physical variable. It's a thing in its own right. And so that's led me to, to have this notion that uh, in addition to the physical hallmarks of cancer, of which there are a dozen or so that are well known, things like evading apoptosis and uh, uncontrolled proliferation and so on, uh, that there will be informational hallmarks of cancer and that this offers a greater leverage in controlling cancer than just concentrating on the stuff, the physical stuff. Well, in terms of, because the, the, the book is predominantly about information, the, the definition of information, this fascinating, the, the, the invisibility but omnipresence of, of, of information. Is that fair enough to... to, to, to the, the... Well, the, the way I would express it is that life is all about information. Mm. So your DNA is packed full of coded information. It's an instruction manual for how to build an organism. It gets passed on from one generation to the next. Uh, your genes communicate with each other. There's uh, form networks of information exchange. Your cells send signals to other cells, your brain is processing information, and then if you think of communities of organisms, like ants, for example, they arrive at uh, collective decision-making, and then even if you look at the biosphere as a whole, it's really a, it's the original World Wide Web, it's a network of information exchange. So life is all about information. If you talk to a biologist, what is life? You'll be given a narrative in terms of things like uh, translation and transcription and coded in instructions and signaling and gene editing. So this uh, is something on everybody's lips these days. You can edit genes, well there's natural editing and then there's artificial editing, but it's all about information. Whereas to a physicist, life is uh, about molecules uh, and, and entropy and energy and things like that. And so somehow we've got to connect these two narratives. And that's what I'm trying to do uh, in this book. Uh, I think we finally answered the question, what is life? And, it, and it's all about patterns of organised information. Well, that's, on that, if, um, I might have misunderstood, but when, when I was reading about the omnipresence of, you know, the, the information, and it made me think of the fact that, uh, you know, information in matter, but you can't necessarily see as such the information. You can see the structure. And I thought about that if you, you know, if we look at the brain, we might be able to see all the structure of the brain, but we can't see the thoughts of the brain. So is, is, that, is that a fair kind of way of trying to view the, the invisibility of information despite its... Right, so at first sight you think, well, information is just an abstract uh, concept, that it's not a physical thing. Uh, but people used to think this about energy. 
Uh, we don't see energy either. Uh, nevertheless, we know it's important for understanding physical processes. And there is a link between information and matter, and it goes all the way back to James Clark Maxwell, uh, who worked only uh, a few hundred meters from where we're sitting now, uh, King's College in London. Uh, it was a little bit after he left there, he came up with the idea of uh, what became known as a demon. This would be a tiny creature that could perceive individual molecules and sort them into fast and slow categories. And by doing that would lead to a certain type of perpetual motion machine, energy for free, if you like. Uh, and um, so this was the first chink in the wall of mystery surrounding the nature of life, because he showed that there was a link between information and matter, for the simple reason that the demon works by gathering information about molecules and gaining a thermodynamic advantage. In effect, uh, being able to run energy, or run a machine uh, with thermal energy. Now, uh, let, let me explain that the, the second law of thermodynamics, which lies at the heart of uh, trying to understand all types of processes in nature, uh, says, roughly speaking, that heat only goes from hot to cold. I think we're familiar with that. You've got an ice cube in a warm drink and the ice melts, it doesn't become bigger, it doesn't grow larger. Uh, but a refrigerator, of course, takes heat from cold and pumps it into the warm kitchen. Uh, but the refrigerator uses energy. Uh, your electricity bills go up to pay for the refrigerator. Well, Maxwell's demon can achieve the same trick, make heat, make heat flow backwards, reverse the arrow of time, make heat go from cold to hot, uh, by using information. So information is a source of energy, and you can actually make an information engine that's powered entirely from information. And in Finland, they've even made an information-powered refrigerator, doing exactly what I described. It's only a nano refrigerator, so don't get too excited. It won't save your electricity bills in the kitchen. But nevertheless, it establishes the principle that information serves as a type of fuel. So we know there is a link between information and matter, uh, that information has leverage over matter, uh, and that's the beginning of an understanding of how life performs its seeming magic uh, by exploiting informational effects. Now, we need to go far beyond uh, just uh, playing the margins of the second law of thermodynamics, uh, but it, it shows that information is a real physical thing, uh, and I think this is what explains life's remarkable properties. You you quote Richard Feynman. I'm now going to probably misquote him, which is uh, if I if I uh, if I cannot build it, I do not understand it. Right. Uh, and I wondered how much the ability for humans to create computers to the, the information processing on, on that scale, how much that changed our ability to begin to understand information within nature, that by building something artificial like that. Uh, I, I think the connection between computing and life is very clear, very close, and has been apparent right from the from the start, the very conception of a universal computer is very close to the conception of a universal constructor, a machine that can construct uh, itself, self-replicating machine. Uh, and these days, if you 
talk to biologists. Uh, they really use computer language all the time in describing their subject matter. Uh, and so uh, it's more than an analogy. I think it really is, um, there is a deep correspondence. Cells are supercomputers. Uh, they are processing information all the time. And if you think even something as modest as a bacteria and is poking about knowingly in its environment, it's uh, garnering information about its surroundings, it's processing that information internally, and it's responding accordingly. And that's part of the secret of its success. Uh, so life is full of that type of information processing. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, and biologists would, uh, would naturally talk in those terms. But to a physicist, of course, that is a real challenge. Because what is this information? What is actually going on? And how, is, uh, how do these patterns of information uh, gain control over matter? How is it that, uh, that these, this information processing harnesses matter and enables life to do its incredible things? I want to talk a little bit about the, um, when, when you talk, there's a few things that didn't, well, they did take me by surprise because I think they're things that people would believe were likely. For instance, when people read in newspapers about the human genome, when they read about the sequencing, that the fact that you say that to know the whole code of something will still not tell you. You, you wouldn't be able to read that and go, oh, I've read the, we've read the whole code and now we've drawn what this creature's going to be and here's the internal or this is what it's going to look like. Now that to me is, compared to 20 years ago when you read in popular press, oh, the genome's been sequenced and now we understand everything. And then some people say, well, actually, it's like being given all the letters for war and peace, but then having to put them in order. But this actual idea of going... Here's the code, but it doesn't mean that you can. You would then be able to draw the creature. Uh, no, that's absolutely right, and I think this is the difference between genetics and epigenetics. The point about genes is that they can be in two states, on or off, and so uh, humans have what twenty thousand genes. That's not nearly enough to specify all the information to make a human body, but it doesn't have to because uh, what you have is two to the power of twenty thousand different states. Uh, what determines those states? What determines when genes are switched on and off. That is this uh, field of epigenetics, uh, and that can involve all sorts of variables um, from the, the environment of the cell. It can involve physical forces, for example, uh, chemical signals. Uh, and so this, uh, the degree of complexity that can be encoded in 20,000 genes is far greater than 20,000 bits of information. Uh, and to understand how life operates, you have to understand that network. So it's very rare that an individual gene can be identified with some particular feature, I mean, there are cases, uh, but mostly genes form complex networks. And so information swirls around these networks. And we should really think of uh, organisms being controlled and characterized by the state of the network, not the state of any individual gene. So when you see it as interlocking information networks, of great, sometimes of great complexity, then it begins to make a bit more sense. Now we're only beginning to scratch the surface of what it is that determines the landscape of network states. But that's the way to think about life, not in terms of is there a gene that, for this or a gene for that. But this was, when you talk about some, well, some of the experiments that have been done in space as well, the, the two-headed flatworm. <laughs> yes. Now this again about the, the, the changing of, 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 of the reading 
of, of is that right to fair to say the translation of genome to, to end up with it? It's an amazing picture. There's not that many pictures in a book, but suddenly you come across there's a two headed flat one, and that. Again, instinctually, this seems, from, from very basic reading, this seems a very peculiar uh, occurrence, that that is a possibility. And also you talk about some of the experiments as well with uh, uh, frogs as well. Um, how, how do we, how does, what is our understanding of the reading that leads to something like that? Well, now this is an extraordinary thing because uh, the textbooks will tell you that the form that, the phenotype, as we call it, the, of the organism is determined by the genes. Well, now these worms, uh, they're called planaria, and you can, they have a head and a tail, you can chop them in half, and the head grows a tail, the tail grows a head, so they will replicate. Uh, I once asked Mike Levin, who is the collaborator at Tufts University, who um, worked, does these experiments with these worms, uh, do these worms have uh, sex? And he said, well, they do but they prefer to be chopped up. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, in, in uh, under normal circumstances, head grows a tail, tail grows a head, but he can uh, mess around with the electric uh, polarization across the cell membrane. All cells are little electrical machines. They have about a few millivolts uh, potential difference across the membrane. And if you alter that uh, in a certain way, then you can encourage uh, the... Uh, head to grow another head and the tail to grow another tail. So you get two headed worms and two tail worms. And you might think, well, uh, if you chop a two headed worm in half, it will revert to two uh, normal worms. But no, it makes more two headed worms. Uh, and, and so on, generation by generation. So uh, the extraordinary thing is that the DNA for the two headed worms is identical to the DNA for the normal worm. And yet the phenotype is completely different. So somehow that information about the morphology, about the form of the organism is being uh, conveyed from one generation to the next in some manner, not the DNA, obviously. So there are patterns of information that are passed on from one generation to the next, not genetic, but as we say, epigenetic, which really means we don't know where that information is stored, but, but it is stored. And then this uh, extraordinary twist that when they chop the middle out of a normal worm and send it into space, I think in about 15% of cases they come back with two heads instead of a head and a tail. Uh, so, so all of this uh, I think is a, a strong illustration that genes are not everything. And so if what your interest is in uh, the, um, the nature of information and it's uh, the way in which it controls the form of the organism, then uh, we're faced with a real mystery as to how this information is stored and propagated. And that's something that my research group is working on, trying to come up with an explanation. Where is this information? Well, well you do mention in the book as well about the, the idea, it, you know, it, is it perhaps worth giving Lamarck a second go? You know, that, the, uh, that Lamarckism, perhaps there's still something to dwell on right. uh, there. Right. That's a very emotive subject, mm. you see, uh, because uh, mainstream biologists hate uh, the old word, uh, and yet uh, the, uh, it, it's clear that uh, the worms are just one example, that uh, what happens to organisms uh, during their lifetime, that some of those features can be passed on to their offspring. Now, uh, the worms are rather simple. Uh, where this would become much more contentious would be human beings. 
is it conceivable that uh, events that befall human beings during their lifetime would actually be passed on to their children, uh, affect their, their children? There's some evidence, uh, it's contentious, uh, that this is the case even with human beings. Uh, with plants, it's very clearly the case and has been known a long time. So I think we are here in a sort of middle position that some aspects of Lamarckism uh, really do seem to apply in modern epigenetics. Uh, but this is a story still being unraveled. This is on things which some people are more resistant to than others as well. Towards the end of the book, you talk a little bit about quantum biology. Mm. And again, this is... Uh, I suppose for, for, for lay people like me, there was, there was a division. There was the division of, uh, on, on, on the large scale, and then there's the entirely separate rules uh, when we get to the very small, and uh, there is, you know, the, the, the meeting between the two, there, there is a division. And yet now we are beginning. I know that Brian Cox, who I do a lot of shows with, you know, he was never that keen uh, on biology. He was very keen on physics. And once he found out there may well be quantum behavior and photosynthesis, everything changed for him. <laughs> and, uh, but find it. And, and, and I think that, of course, it's always a problem, as, as you know, having written about it before, for, uh, for people like that, the counter-instinctual nature of what might be seen as, I don't want to say the rules, obviously, but, but, but the counter-instinctual nature of that compared to the world that we ourselves view, already we, we, we have a battle. Um, so quantum biology, what, what do you feel that opens up in terms of our understanding of what is life? The big unknown about quantum biology is whether the handful of examples which I discuss in the book and received a lot of attention, uh, things like photosynthesis and bird navigation and one or two other things, whether these are uh, just quirky little cases where life has spotted a quantum trick and has jumped on it and it gives some selective advantage and so it's sort of got locked in by evolution. Or is it the tip of a quantum iceberg? In other words, is it the case that we won't fully understand the answer to the question, what is life, without taking a quantum view of that? Now, I sit on the fence somewhat. Uh, I've yet to be convinced that it amounts to much more than a few odds and ends. But there is intriguing evidence. And most recently, uh, the, the work... Um, uh, of a, a group of people in uh, Hungary and uh, some work that we're doing at ASU seems to indicate that, uh, but uh, I say biological molecules, I mean organic molecules that are important in biology, not just uh, large molecules, uh, do seem to have uh, quantum conductance properties, which are quite unusual. And I'm talking about electrons flowing through these organic molecules. Uh, almost as if nature has selected these molecules for their quantum properties. Now, this is work still in progress. It remains to be seen uh, how important it is. But it's sort of intriguing to imagine that maybe quantum mechanics is really critical to life. Some people say, well, of course it's critical because it determines the shapes and, uh, and uh, binding energies of molecules which is true, but I'm talking about non-trivial quantum effects like quantum tunneling and uh, being in two places at once, which is uh, just a way of talking, uh, and, uh, and entanglement and other uh, sort of quantum weirdness aspects. Are these really important for life or are they just little quirks? So I think the jury's still out on this, but it's 
obviously an important area of investigation at the moment. This, I find it very interesting that for the idea that science, the disciplines become more and more refined and, 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 and separate in some ways because the information is increasing all the time. And yet at the same time now, this moment where yeah, we're brought up with, you do biology, you do chemistry, you do physics. Mm. And now those shaded areas between the fact that you as a physicist and yet also you've great interest in, in like that we find fascinating to me anyway, links where, you know, the idea of going off and specialising in certain areas of understanding life without having a good understanding also of sometimes theoretical physics. The, the two now seem to put the, there's a re, I'm going to say re-entanglement, but you don't, you see. Well, there's a convergence and, and I think the old subject boundaries are becoming less and less relevant. What I see is the next great frontier of science, not the very large, not the very small, but the very complex. And this is where uh, chemistry, physics, computing, nanotechnology and information theory all converge. And we're talking now about the nano world, so a billionth of a metre, uh, where you have large molecules or molecular machines, which are important in living organisms, but they're important in nano devices as well. Uh, these uh, little machines that process information, that play the margins of the second law of thermodynamics, and uh, can only be understood, uh, probably, with uh, quantum technology as well as uh, information theory as well. So it's the meeting ground of all of these different subjects. We don't have a name for this field. Uh, I keep trying to invent one that, that might encompass all of these things, this convergence. But it's clear that in the coming years and decades, this is where the great discoveries are going to take place, at the intersection of these disciplines. You, you mentioned earlier our understanding of what, what is life now. It's always been, whenever I've done shows where we've asked people to define life, of course, as you know, and as you, you mentioned, it's a very, very problematic issue to actually get a clear definition until you go, oh, hang on a minute, that's also crystals or whatever. What for you is the uh, most satisfactory definition of what is life? Oh, it has to do with the uh, information. And, the, and it's not enough to just say, well, life is all about information. It's very specific informational patterns. And uh, the, the ideas that I've been developing with my colleague, Sarah Walker, uh, su suggests that the transition from non-life to life will be uh, associated with a change in the architecture of that information uh, from bottom up to top down. So top down uh, causation is something that is very fashionable in certain circles. Uh, what does it mean? It means that we can't really understand what's happening at the uh, level of individual component without understanding the context of the entire system. So it's a sort of systems approach. Uh, you can be quite specific about this. There are ways of measuring information flow and information storage uh, that can show you when it is uh, dominated by the uh, top level as opposed to the bottom level. There's a it sounds very mysterious, but there's a phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and this sort of trips off the tongue, people pay lip service to it all the time. Uh, but what is it that you mean? Can you quantify that? Well, using information theory, you can quantify when the whole, when the system as a whole, in processing information, is doing the informational heavy lifting uh, more than the component parts. 
And that's something which in the architecture of that information could even be quite precise about. So we think that the transition from non-life to life, what makes matter come alive, if you like, is when that uh, particular pattern of information flow flips from bottom up to top down. I wanted to ask, because you, you start the book mentioning Schrodinger's famous lectures, What is Life? And they were celebrated, I know, last year in Trinity, there was a, a big weekend. What is it about those series of lectures that seems to have, they remain so relevant? They seem to be so inspirational to so many people. What's it now, 70 years? 75. 75, 75 years, years old. Yes, that's right. Well, first of all, because Schrodinger was a giant of theoretical physics, of course. And so he came at this problem, what is life, with enormous authority. Now remember when he gave those lectures, quantum mechanics was flushed with recent success. It had, had a stroke explained the nature of matter all the way from uh, atomic nuclei up to stars. Uh, and so uh, I think it probably seemed to Schrodinger that maybe quantum mechanics had the power to explain life as well. It was sufficiently weird to explain the weird properties of life and sufficiently powerful uh, that it could encompass that. Uh, but already, Schrodinger is hinting in that book, well, stating quite explicitly that it may be necessary to go beyond quantum mechanics and to find a new type of physical law uh, prevailing in living matter. Uh, now, at the time, uh, this was pre-DNA. I mean, DNA was known, but it wasn't uh, understood that this was the, uh, the genetic molecule. So Crick and Watson, uh, who discovered the structure of DNA, uh, felt that that book was inspirational, there was an important uh, uh, part of their own uh, education. Uh, Schrodinger had come up with the notion that the genetic information must be stored somehow in what he called an aperiodic crystal. Uh, he understood the importance of the informational aspect, that uh, if you have something with the, if you have a, just a crystal, it's got no, no information, in the credit information, it's just a regular array. Uh, and he wanted something that would be not periodic, something that would be, in effect, random, would have a large information content, so rich in information, but with the stability of a crystal. And that's exactly what DNA is. So that turned out to be really very important. The fundamental question that he was asking, what is life, I think has remained unanswered until very recently, uh, because you might think, well, don't biologists know what life is? Well, biologists are concerned with what life does, not what it is. I think you need a physicist to approach the question of what is life. And uh, Schrodinger was hot on the trail by recognizing the importance of embedding information uh, in life, that this is a characteristic. But now we can understand in much greater detail the, the power of information. Uh, to, in effect, animate matter. Well, so, so, I mean, the, the book has lots, for, for me, lots of revelations in it, and there's reading about salmonella in space and you know, all manner of, uh, so not just the flatworms, but it's um, also Alan Turing. I didn't know about his, his interest in, in morphogenesis as yes, well. Now, yes, now yes, this yes. is, again, I, I've read a few biologists, Matthew Cobb's written written about this as well, that this this remarkable moment, and it never stops being, when, when you look at the, the phases of, of, of an embryo, when you look at that, and, and so I'm very interested just to hear a little bit about what Alan Turing's interest was in morphogenesis and, and, and what he contributed. 
I suppose if you want to pick anything that illustrates the wonder of life, the seeming magic of what is going on in living matter, embryogenesis would be it. Because here we have this exquisitely choreographed development of all of these features that an embryo possesses. Uh, and uh, and it's, it seems deeply mysterious. It is, I mean, still to this day, deeply mysterious. Now, obviously, uh, what is going on here somehow is that information which is being stored in the DNA is being expressed, uh, but expressed in a very controlled and managed manner. Uh, and Turing clearly recognised that this was important, and he felt that somehow the different components of the embryo ought to know their location in three-dimensional space in order that the right features appear in the right place. Uh, he didn't, of course, understand all that we do now about gene expression, uh, and the chemicals that he imagined were diffusing through the developing embryo, he didn't know the identities of those. All of this stuff is now being investigated in much greater detail. And uh, it's clear that the developing embryo is an amalgam of webs of information and webs of chemistry coupled together. It, it, the full details have still not been completely worked out. There are one or two cases, for example, the uh, development of the sea urchin embryo has been worked out in quite some detail. Uh, the, in effect, the wiring diagram, that is the gene regulatory network that controls the development of the sea urchin, uh, was worked out by Eric Davidson at uh, Caltech some time ago, and uh, they can give a blow-by-blow -blow account of how that embryo develops in terms of which genes are expressed and where the information is flowing around that network. So it's very much a sort of electronics approach. You've got a wiring diagram that describes uh, how that process is controlled and you sort of start it off and you follow uh, how the genes switch each other on and off and it really does seem to conform with what is observed. Of course, that's a very simple example. But that was when I was reading about that. It's quite early, but just the idea of you know, here we go. Here's the embryo, and then chopping it up, and then going, and then in fact, all the information, you know, even chopping down to quite small. You, you well, single, so single cell. Yeah. In the uh, in the nineteenth century, I uh, was experimenting with the uh, sea urchin embryo as uh, an example of uh, that. If you take an early stage embryo and muck around with it, it, it recovers and you end up with a, uh, a normal development. So, uh, he, and so he felt that this was an important part of, uh, well, he, he believed in some sort of life force and he saw this as evidence that there was uh, something like that controlling, uh, sort of a, almost like um, supervising the development of the embryo. We don't think in terms of a life force now, we think in terms of webs of information and uh, chemical networks and informational networks. Um, but he was uh, quite right, of course, to draw attention to the um, seeming magic of the way in which embryo development uh, works. So I think we, we now understand that a lot better. But there are still a lot of mysteries about uh, more complex organisms. Um, just two more. Well, well, one I wanted to mention, Richard Feynman pops up a few times in this book, including his ratchet machine. And um, I'm always fascinated to know what people, how 
if you are able in any way to define how you see how his mind works, because I talk to not just physicists, but scientists generally, uh, about, and it seems that, you know, the, the, what was the wonderful, was it Freeman Dyson, uh, you know, the, the no ordinary genius, there's, there's an ordinary genius who, if they really work hard and concentrate, they can come up with revelations. And then there's, you know, Feynman, who is almost seen as, as if there's a level of wizardry there, which goes beyond any common understanding. Right, right. Um, I met Feynman only once, and that was towards the end of his life. Uh, but of course, he did have a formidable reputation. And a friend of mine who knew him very well, said that uh, in theoretical physics, there are two ways of solving a problem. One is to sit down and use mathematics, and the other is go and ask Feynman. <laughs> and, and there are some people, and I think Enrico Fermi was probably in this category, and, and probably Paul Dirac, who could somehow divine the answer to something uh, without actually having to go through all of the intermediate steps. So some people just have that ability uh, particularly in theoretical physics. I'm not sure it's true in any other subject, certainly not true in economics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so he was a very exceptional individual. I think there's no doubt about that. I'm, I'm no Feynman, I'm afraid. I sometimes have hunches about how things are. Sometimes those hunches are correct, uh, but I think it's no more than blind luck. Yes, I'm a kind of antithesis of Feynman there. My, my inability to work very hard to come up with totally the wrong answer. Um, the uh, I, I, the final, because you, it's five decades now, isn't it, that you've been writing? I would, your first well, it's 31 books, and I think my first book was 1974, uh, The Physics of Time Asymmetry. So uh, I can't do the arithmetic in so many decades. That would be, well, <laughs> I, I, I wondered how you, as, as someone who has, has, been writing for uh, uh you know about science for so long and trying to draw people into very many fascinating ideas and um how do you feel in in 2019 in terms of public understanding of science how where do you feel we we've, we've got to oh well now when i first embarked on this my very first book was not a popular book uh you might say it was an unpopular book uh though it's so well uh and I began writing what we would now call popular science uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and most of my colleagues were aghast. In fact, one said, stop writing these popular books, it will destroy your career. Uh, and another said, uh, for every book you publish, popular book you publish, subtract 10 from your uh, publication list of papers. So it had that negative effect. Uh, and then, an extraordinary phenomenon happened. It was called A Brief History of Time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Stephen Hawking wrote this runaway bestseller. And I think the feeling was, well, if it's okay for Hawking, maybe it's okay for me. And then suddenly, uh, everybody I knew was writing popular science books, and it became okay. The other thing is that there was a big swing away from science generally, but physics in particular, in the 80s. And a lot of universities felt that actually maybe it's all right to try to get science out to the wider public. Maybe it will encourage some young people to think about a career in science. And I, and I think on the whole that has been the case. Uh, so it, it has been really quite a transformation. So I don't now feel embarrassed to say, well, you know, I've just written a book uh, about what is life. Uh, whereas in the early days, I, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, tried to not let my colleagues even know about it. You know, there'd be a book coming out and I hope they wouldn't notice. Uh, <laughs> That's fascinating. It seems amazing when we think back. 
Well, it's when I'm, you know, reading about some of the reactions to Carl Sagan, who I suppose for a lot of people was the first in, in their generation popularizer science. Before that, someone like Jacob Bronowski. Um, yes, yes. And it just, but I, I and, and in terms of what you would feel about the public itself, because I think there's an enormous number of people. I find that when I go off with Brian and we do live shows, it's a fantastic mix of people in the audience. When I was doing a show last night, I had some nine-year-olds in, had some eight-year-olds in, um, but I. I wondered also about the ability to convey misinformation with ease now. Yes. It means that whether the it's created a greater division as well. There are lots of people who are excited and curious and interested in, in, in the doubt that comes from science and the joy of the curiosity and the possibilities, but also there are people who feel fully armed on things like climate change, etc. Where Right. The, the toughest thing to get... There are two tough things, actually, about popularising science. One is mathematics, because particularly in theoretical physics, it may make sense mathematically, but you can't tell uh, that if, if you express that to a member of the public, they don't, don't know what you're talking about. The, the beauty of the mathematics, you know, to me suggests that it's got to be this way or that way. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they have no idea. So you, you have to steer clear of mathematics and arguments based on mathematics. That's the first thing. The other thing that people don't really get is that science, scientific knowledge is always provisional. Uh, it's always tentative. Nobody has the last word that we have theories, we can have confidence in theories. We're not talking about the truth, we're talking about reliable knowledge. That when we uh, have a particular theory of this or that, Einstein's general theory of relativity or thermodynamics or whatever it happens to be, uh, what we're saying is that uh, this is the most reliable description we have of this or that phenomena. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's, it can never be overthrown or superseded or embedded in something bigger. Uh, and, and that's a really hard thing. People expect black and white answers. Mm. Uh, and science doesn't work that way. And climate change is a very good example. People often say to me, well, you know, who do I believe? And, and what I say is that there are certain things that uh, everybody would agree on. For example, that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It has a warming effect. The carbon dioxide is going up in the atmosphere, we can measure it. Uh, the, these things are uh, beyond dispute, and that the world is warming, because you can measure that too. All those things uh, everybody would agree on. Uh, and then when you get to things like, well, will Arizona become wetter or drier in 50 years' time? Uh, I don't think we have the ability to be able to make that sort of prediction. So uh, does that mean climate scientists don't know what they're talking about? No, of course they do, but we need to spend more money and do more research and have a better understanding of this complex system. And that, that all you can do at any given time is to give our best estimate of how things are. And uh, people find it very hard to understand that. That this is science and we just need to do more work. Thanks for listening. New episode of Science Shambles. We'll be with you in a fortnight as usual. Don't forget to check out the Brain Yapping podcast as well for some more science-y podcasts from us, Dean Burnett and Rachel England. New episode of that will be out this coming Monday. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles to support the Cosmic Shambles Network. Back soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.